starting in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, uh, and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So Paul begins this passage by quoting a couple of uh, sayings or slogans, whatever you want to call them, that uh, were apparently well-known to the Corinthians, and some in the church were probably using these slogans to perhaps justify what they were doing. And so Paul begins with the first one, and he says, uh, quotes the slogan, everything is permissible for me. And so there was a lot of freedom, especially sexual, especially sexual freedom in the city of Corinth. And some of them were adopting this, I can do anything I want. I'm free to do anything I want. And Paul's response to that is, you physically can do anything you want, perhaps, but it is not beneficial for you to do everything that you want. Then he does this other quote that is interesting. He says, uh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. I don't understand everything behind that, but I think what Paul is getting after is this idea that uh, a lot of people thought of the body as just a physical body and that's all. And so if your body is hungry, you feed your body. And likewise, if you are sexually hungry, if you're desiring something sexually, then you feed your body uh, with sex. And behind that was this idea that they had in that culture, and it was a very prominent way of thinking, that there's the body and there's the soul. And they are very distinct from one another. They're not connected. Meaning that it doesn't matter what you do with your body, it doesn't affect your soul. Because one day your body will die, it will go into the ground, and your soul lives on after that. So what you do with your body here on earth, it doesn't really matter because it's separate from your soul. And the Apostle Paul counters all of that, and he's saying the body is important. What we do with our body really matters. Why? First of all, Paul says, don't you know that your body is a member of Christ himself? That somehow, physically, your body belongs to Jesus. Okay? So our bodies do matter. And then Paul, later on in the text, says, don't you know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you if you belong to Jesus. Your body is a living place, a dwelling place for none other than God himself by his Holy Spirit. And therefore, Paul says, what you do with your body really matters. It really does matter. So Paul counters all of this and he's saying, sex is not just physical. What we do with our bodies really matters. And therefore, Paul says, first of all, how can you then unite yourself with a prostitute? If your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, if your body is united to Christ, then why on earth would you unite yourself with a prostitute? Why does Paul bring up this idea of uniting with a prostitute? Well, 
in the city of Corinth. Um, there was temple worship that happened at the big temple in Corinth, and prostitutes were part of that temple worship. That men would go and engage in sex with prostitutes as part of their worship. And this was commonplace. This was accepted. And so obviously, maybe some of the Corinthian men in the church were still engaged in that kind of practice. And Paul says, it doesn't work. You belong to Christ. Your body matters to Christ. You don't unite your body with a prostitute. And then Paul says, flee sexual immorality. But we think of our society today as a society that is sexually liberal. And that the olden days, they were much more conservative. And you just need to know that probably, in reality, the opposite is true. That back in that day in particular, they were much more liberal than you and I even realize. Um, Sex with prostitutes were part of worship, as I mentioned. Uh, Polygamy, polyamory were common in that day. One biblical scholar tells us this. The sexual latitude allowed to men by Greek public opinion was virtually unrestricted. Sexual relations of males with both boys and harlots were generally tolerated in that society. So it was a very sexual, liberal, liberal culture, and that's why Paul is taking this subject on, because it's, it was incredibly applicable to the Corinthians, and he wants them to know what is God's idea of healthy sexuality, and it's incredibly applicable to us as well. So Paul, Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality, and then he says, all other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. This is an interesting verse. And again, I don't understand everything that Paul was trying to say there. But what I do understand, what's clear to me as Paul says that, is he's, he's not saying that sexual sin is worse than every other sin. Paul is saying, I believe, that there's something unique about sexual sin. Something that sets it apart from other ways that we can come outside of the will of God. Sex is a unique physical and emotional act. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in a good sense with regards to its beauty and pleasure and power, but there's also nothing like it with regards to when it is used in an unhealthy or wrong way. And most of us know that all too well. Paul urges the Corinthians with all of this teaching in mind, he urges them to do two things. Flee from sexual immorality and honor God with your body. Flee from sexual immorality, honor God with your body. Now, all of this is assuming one thing. All of this is assuming that the Bible has an ethic about sexuality. It's assuming that God has boundaries or parameters for how sex is to be used. If that weren't the case, there would be no reason for Paul to write any of what he has just written. But it assumes that the Bible has certain parameters for how God feels sex is to be used in a healthy way. It's his will for our sexuality. And that is the case. So what is the biblical ethic of sex? What are the parameters that, Bible, that God puts around sex? And namely, it is simply this, that God's intention for sex is that it is to be enjoyed within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible tells us that God's intention for sex is that it is to be enjoyed within the context of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And sexual activity that goes beyond that marriage relationship falls outside of God's intention for sex. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. 
The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness or else total abstinence. Now that is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it, as, uh, as it now is, has gone wrong. This is, goes against everything, almost everything that our culture is teaching and that our culture believes. My friend uh, Mark Peters, who is the uh, lead pastor at, at North Shore Alliance, he tells the story about uh, one day he was on a plane and he was sitting next to a man, late 30s, early 40s. Uh, they introduced themselves, chit-chatted a little bit, and this man went on to tell Mark that he was writing his master's thesis. He was finishing up his master's thesis. Mark asked him what the, the subject of his master's thesis was, and the, ma- uh, the man said, uh, it's about pornography. And particularly, his thesis was that pornography is a tool that is used to enhance marriage relationships and relationships in general. That pornography, pornography can be a tool that enhances relationships between men and women, whether dating or married. And my friend Mark was completely caught off guard by this. Uh, he had never heard this before, and so he uttered something like, Oh, that's an interesting idea. I think that's what he said to me. And so for the next 30 minutes, this man outlined his arguments and conclusions. Uh, he didn't ask for Mark's opinion, and Mark didn't give him his opinion. Mark just sat and listened to uh, this man's thesis that he was writing. And then Mark said, moments before the plane landed, the question came to Mark. He said, turned to Mark and said, and what do you do for a living? And Mark said that he would have been very happy for Jesus to return at that moment. But Mark proceeded to tell him that he was a Christian pastor, and in an instant, this man's countenance changed. He began to accuse Mark of the worst forms of intolerance, narrow-mindedness, self-righteousness, and judgmentalism. And Mark just made the comment, he says, it was very ironic that all I did was listen. I didn't tell this man he was out to lunch. I didn't tell this man he was wrong. I didn't argue with him at all. All I did was listen. And when he found out that I was a Christian, this man proceeded to engage in the very behavior that he was actually accusing me of. And the interesting question is, why the such a strong reaction of this? Why did this man have such a strong reaction? Was it simply because he thought Mark's view on sexuality probably would be out of date? And the answer is, that reaction was much too strong for that. Mark said that this strong reaction, he believes, was probably from this man's conviction that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is not just out of date, but it's actually oppressive. It's actually damaging. And that is a common view in our culture today. As we hold a high view of the scriptures, particularly with regards to its teaching on sex, is the Bible's view on sex good news, or is it actually, are we living in the dark ages? I would say that it's good news, but it's good news that needs to be properly understood. Some people would argue that the Bible actually doesn't teach that sex outside of marriage is necessarily wrong. Some people believe that what the Bible teaches is that sex outside of a marriage relationship, that is, adultery, is wrong. But if you're not married, sex is not necessarily wrong. But the Bible actually doesn't teach that. The Bible plainly teaches that sex outside of the marriage relationship in general is outside of God's will for our sexuality. In a number of places in the New Testament, there's an actual distinction made between adultery and sexual immorality. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. 
Adultery is when a uh, adultery is when a husband or wife chooses to engage in sexual activity outside of that relationship. But sexual immorality is a term that comes from the term fornication, which means sex outside of marriage in general. And, and it's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul talks to single people in, in particular, he gives this word to single people. He says, if you are being tempted sexually, it is better for you to marry than to burn with passion. It is better for you to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if sex outside of the marriage relationship was not wrong, there would be no reason for Paul to write that. He was writing with the assumption that God's intention and God's will for our sexuality is it is to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship. This, I believe, is clearly taught in the scriptures. It doesn't mean it's easy, not by any stretch. But this is the biblical ethic of sex. Now, in our culture, of course, there's disagreement over this. But it's interesting that even in the evangelical church, there is disagreement over this. In 2014, the Vancouver Sun conducted a poll with BC residents who were Christian, who called themselves Christian, and the purpose was to discover what Christians think about a variety of subjects, including sexuality and sexual expression. What they discovered is that when it comes to sexual morality, BC Christians, at least the ones that they uh, interviewed, were all over the map. 74% of Christians polled approved of sex before marriage, and the main sex-related act that most Christians oppose, 92%, is married men or women having an affair. Almost all British Columbians, Christians or not, agreed that marital infidelity is basically unforgivable. So there are views all over the map, even within the church, on this. This article also indicated that there is great division, even in the church, on whether or not God condones same-sex relationships. And I know that that's not a subject that we can dive into with any depth this morning, but I just want to say a few words, because this is a subject that we hear about and is talked about in our culture all the time. So let me just say a few more pastoral words for us this morning. Um, I believe, it's my conviction, that the Scriptures teach fairly plainly, very plainly, that sex is to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and that's... God would say in the scriptures that same-sex relationships are not what he intended, and they fall outside of his will. I believe that's very plain in the scripture. But what I would like to say to us this morning is that as the church has tried to engage in this conversation in our culture, I think over the past number of decades, oftentimes the church has done a very poor job. And sometimes the church has failed miserably at this. The church, unfortunately, the evangelical church, especially in the States, but here in Canada too, has often made same-sex relationships into a political issue, which is deeply unfortunate. And the other thing that the evangelical church have often done is they have cherry-picked the sin of same-sex relationships, and they have said, this is the sin that God is most angry with. And you just need to know that's not true. The Bible has some strong things to say about homosexuality. But you know what else the Bible has some strong things to say about? Gossip. Deeply strong things to say about a whole variety of things that fall outside of the will of God. And it's interesting. Um, I was doing some reading on this, reading a book by Tony Campolo. And Tony Campolo was making the point that it's interesting as you read the teachings of Jesus, 
There's nowhere in the teachings of Jesus that we have that Jesus even addresses the issue of homosexuality. It doesn't mean it wasn't an issue in his day, and it doesn't mean that Jesus wouldn't have had the same position that I just stated. In fact, Tony Campolo says he certainly would have. But it's interesting to note that Jesus never even once addressed this particular sin. But then he makes the point, you know what sin that Jesus addressed the most? Religious people who condemn other people without looking at the sin in their own lives. And we need to pay attention to that, friends. As we engage in issues in our culture, issues that people have a variety of opinions about, we need to check our own hearts first. Our own hearts right in this conversation. So just a few pastoral words to us about that issue. The man on the plane with my friend Mark would argue that the Christian ethic of sexuality is repressive and damaging in our society. But again, I would argue the opposite. I believe that if more of our society understood God's design for sex, our society would be much healthier and much safer. God is not trying to limit us or be a cosmic killjoy, keeping people from having fun. He is actually trying to protect us. Sex outside of marriage has all sorts of problems that hurt people and that damage people. And one of the realities that the Bible talks about is that, again, sex is not just a physical act. Sex is not casual, no matter how much our world tries to convince us of this. When Adam and Eve came together in sexual union, the Old Testament scriptures again says that the two will become one flesh. That is, that there is a union that happens when two people come together in sex. It's not meant to just be casual, and it's not meant to be torn apart, and you just move on to the other person. There is a bonding of heart and soul, even if we're not aware of it. One day we will be, but there is a union that takes place. It's not just physical. Sex is a bit like glue. Don't apply it until you're ready to make the relationship permanent. If you apply it before you make the relationship permanent, and then you tear it apart, there's all sorts of damage that happens. There's a myth out there in our world that says that in order to determine who I will be compatible with in marriage, compatible with in marriage, that we need to sleep together first to make sure that we are sexually compatible. And you just need to know this is just a great myth. Because the fact of the matter is, is that no marriage ends because of sexual incompatibility. That's not why marriages end. Marriages end because of relational problems. Marriages end because of problems that you bring into the marriages. Marriages do not end because of sexual incompatibility. Andy Stanley, in his excellent book called The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating, he says this. He says, My hunch is that the root of your previous relationship challenges was relational, not sexual. Chances are you would have addressed the relational challenges more quickly if you hadn't been physically involved. In fact, you would have ended the relationship sooner if you hadn't been sexually involved. Not only is sex not the litmus test for relational compatibility, it actually inhibits and distracts from relational development. Why? Because sex has the capacity to camouflage an endless list of relational deficiencies and dysfunctions. Romance overpowers objectivity, which will work to your advantage in marriage. But before marriage, a lack of objectivity is dangerous. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
I just want to affirm again that as we consider all of this biblical ethic for sexuality, friends, God is for you. He is not against you. God actually has our best interest in mind. He wants what is best for us. And again, it doesn't mean that it's easy. <clears throat> it is not. I know that. But something that I like to say to uh, when I teach on this subject is this. If you are single and you are dating and this is your conviction that you want sex to be something that is enjoyed when you get married and the person that you are dating is pressuring you to move into a sexual relationship, my advice to you is dump them. End the relationship. And I'm serious about that. Because as much as they will try to convince you, what the reality is is they don't have your best interests in mind. God has your best interests in mind. And you need to be with someone who has the same value that you do. This is such an important part of who we are. God says the things that he says for a reason. I want to begin to close by saying a few things to married couples. Uh, the Bible has some things to say to us about how we can have healthy sexuality and how we can keep it a healthy thing in our marriages. <clears throat> the first thing, it's an interesting passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul here is describing um, a married couple that <clears throat> uh, stops in their sexual relations and comes apart for a period of time for the purpose of prayer. Now, <clears throat> again, we don't understand exactly why they would be doing that, but that's what some of them were doing. And Paul's counsel to them is, you can do that, but don't do that for too long. After a while, come back together, and what he means is come back together sexually so that you will not be tempted. Now, I think one of the principles that we take out of that is that if you are married, paying attention to your sex life is extremely important. Giving attention to that area of your marriage is very, very important for your health in this whole area of sexuality and for the health of your marriage. Don't ignore this component of your marriage, but seek to uh, make it flourish and grow and give attention to this area of your marriage. The other thing that the Bible would say to us in the context, not only of marriage, but certainly in the context of marriage, is that as we move throughout our world, that we are to guard our hearts and also guard our eyes. Our eyes are the gateway to our hearts, and it is out of the heart that overflows all sorts of behavior. And in the area of sexuality, we live in a world where we have to be very careful. Careful with what we watch, careful with what we look at on the internet. We need to guard our eyes, and friends, we need to guard our hearts. And for married couples, I want to say this as well, that one of the things that you need to be very careful of in order for your uh, marriage to remain healthy and the whole sexual side of your marriage to remain healthy is that you need to also guard your relationships with people of the opposite sex. That you need to make sure that those relationships, men, relationships with other women that are not your wife, of course, that they're healthy relationships. That you're not moving into a place of intimacy with that person. That you're not spending time that you shouldn't be spending time with that person. You need to guard your heart. Most affairs, if not almost all affairs, do not start with just a split decision. They start with one uh, line being crossed after another line being crossed. It starts over time. And it's one decision after the next decision. And we cross this line and cross the next. And what we need to do is make sure and make a decision right at the front. I'm going to guard my relationships with people of the opposite sex so that I don't begin to cross those lines and we don't move to a place where I will regret it in the end. 
Let me close with this. I want to ask you a question. What story do you want your life to tell? What story do you want your life, the rest of your life to tell with regards to this whole area of sexuality? If you are married, what story do you want to be told or at least for your, for your life to tell at the end of your marriage? You want the story to be that we had a healthy relationship in this whole area of sexuality among other areas in our marriage. That we gave it attention, that we enjoyed it, and that we protected it. Is that the story that you want to tell? Or is the story going to be that that relationship crashed into flames because those things were ignored? What story do you want your life to tell? And if you're single, what story do you want your life to tell? If one day you get married, you want your story to be that I wasn't perfect, but there was a period of time where I saved myself for this person, and I waited. Now, maybe you have made mistakes in the past, but as we consider the question, what story do you want your life to tell, the first place that we need to start is with the grace of Jesus. The Bible has some strong things to say about how we use our sexuality, but the Bible has some very, very strong things to say about the grace of God and the necessity of understanding that you are loved, that God is gracious, and that God is forgiving. And no other story in the Bible, for me, tells this than the story in John chapter 8, when people brought before Jesus the, the woman who was caught in the act of sexual adultery. She's caught in the act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus. Most of you know this story well. And they're using this woman as bait for Jesus to trap him. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery what should we do? Should we stone her? And Jesus doesn't answer right away. He bends down. He starts to write in the, in the sand. And eventually Jesus stands up and he says to them, those of you who are without sin, you, you, you be the first ones to throw your stone. And the text tells us that they all began to go away, the older ones first, until it was just Jesus and the woman. And then Jesus looks at the woman and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And then Jesus, who created this heaven and this earth, Jesus, who is God, Jesus, the sinless one, who some people might have thought would stand there and bawl her out, Jesus looks at this woman with the sin of adultery fresh on her, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Friends, from today, your story can be rewritten. Your story, you can turn to a new chapter and begin writing a fresh chapter. You and I just need to decide with God's help what story are we going to tell. And it begins with understanding that Jesus is for you, not against you, and he doesn't condemn you. That our God is gracious. And what he wants for us and from us is something that is the best for us, even though it is not easy. So I want to pray for us as we close this morning. You just bow your heads for a few minutes. Lord, I'd like to pray for 
all of us this morning, that you would help us to move in a direction of health when it comes to our sexuality, because you care deeply about us. You've said so much to us in your word about it. And Lord, I pray that for those who are not married and who may be struggling in this area, I pray, Lord, that your grace would be sufficient for them, that you would give them joy, that they would know your mercy, and that, as your word says, that there's no temptation that has seized us that is, you know, there's no temptation that has seized us that you will not enable us to overcome. And I pray that you would help each of us in our time of temptation to move to a place of obedience. I pray for marriages here this week, that our marriages would flourish, that our marriages would grow, and that we would pay careful attention to what we've been talking about this morning. And uh, by your grace, Lord, I pray that those places where there is unhealth in our relationships, in our marriages, that you would begin to plant new seeds of health there, that they would grow and flourish. And Father, above all, we thank you. I thank you so much that Jesus looked into the eyes of that woman and said, neither do I condemn you. So for your grace and for your mercy, for your help in our lives, I give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thanks for listening this morning. I promise next week we won't talk about sex. We will talk about something else. I'm going to ask that you would stand and receive the blessing, the benediction from God's word. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Bless you, friends. Have a great day.